You're listening to Labor Wave Radio. Labor Radio is an independent podcast and is sustained by our subscribers on Patreon. So if you enjoy the show, please become a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash Labor If you can't afford to support the show in monetary ways, you can still support us by liking our content on social media and following us, as well as giving us ratings and reviews on whatever podcast listening app you use. Laborwave Radio is also a podcast participant in the Channel Zero Network, which is an English-language anarchist-based podcast network, and you can find all their content and the shows that are featured on that at channelzero.com. Michael Regan, welcome to Laborwave Radio. Thanks so much. I'm really happy to be here. So you're the author of the recently published book, Intersectional Class Struggle, that was jointly published by the Institute for Anarchist Studies and AK Press. And I just got through reading it and I really enjoyed and appreciate it. The kind of intervention you're trying to have in conversations around intersectionality. So I guess, you know, assuming that probably a lot of the listeners know about class, know about intersectionality, or at least have some of the basics, I was hoping you could just provide a quick working definition of like what you mean by intersectional class struggle. Well, I think partially the idea around intersectional class struggle comes from thinking about the composition of the working class and thinking about the working class as continuing to be like an important topic and that we should be talking about, not something that should be discarded. And that, in fact, working people, as they've kind of always been from the origins of industrial capitalism, are diverse. They're men and women. They're people of color. They're immigrants. They're refugees, they're homemakers. Being part of the working class doesn't just mean you're tied to a factory, but you are have a relationship to ownership and oppressed peoples. And, and so it occurred to me that the way we talk about class in the 21st century is not reflecting that composition. You know, when we think about the working class, we think about like workers rather than peoples whose reproductive labor is being exploited, for example, or we're, we're not thinking about immigrants or refugees or people impacted by climate change uh, who, who are part of that working class composition. So it occurred to me that we needed to have kind of a bigger conversation about what it meant to be part of the working class and that intersectional theory, intersectionality, can really help us understand that, that the way people experience class is lived through all these different various experiences via race, gender, or these other factors. So that's kind of what I was trying to get at. Yeah, what you're saying too reminds me of um, 
in the election of Donald Trump, I remember like the morning after, suddenly I was inundated with conversations about this white working class. Like working class always meant white people. Right. It was just, it was almost like that's always been implied, but finally it was just said out loud. Like we're only talking about white people here. And then in the other scenarios I've seen, people struggle to kind of define class in ways, like at least in the popular press, where I've seen like the New York Times define class or working class specifically as people that don't have a college degree. So it's it's extremely partial and limited and confusing. And I guess I was kind of wondering, you know, like just to zoom out a little, you know, talking about class as like a phenomenon of diverse and multivariated people, people of different genders, different races, different ethnicities, different language groups, and so on. It seems really obvious when you say it, but nevertheless, we're in this situation where we have to make the obvious state it. So like, how did we get here? Like, what's going on? Like, why do we have to say, by the way, working class people aren't just white? That's a really good question. And I think there's a long history of that. I, I think there are a couple of things in particular in the U.S., context that makes class difficult to talk about. Uh, one is just there's been a 150-year one-sided class war from business interests who ha have been funding think tanks, research institutes, academic conferences, and everything down to like bowling leagues and sports clubs um, that are all uh, geared around this notion that class isn't important in the United States, that kind of collective interests around uh, social class don't really exist, that we live in a meritocracy. And so there's just been this really relentless effort to kind of drive class out of the conversation. So we don't have the kind of tradition in the U.S. that other countries do in which class has been thought about and researched more and, and, and part of the public conversation more. And so you get these really silly definitions like, People who have a college education are also workers who are getting exploited on the job or your income sets the standard for what class means. And so I think that's part of it. The other part, I think, is that, you know, left organizations from the Communist Party to the Black Panthers and everyone else has faced really relentless government repression and uh, disruption that has made it difficult to sustain movement based organizations. That, that can carry on that legacy of class struggle in the United States. So, you know, by the time we get to the 21st century, we have this diminished tradition that I think is in some need of, of revival. Well, and speaking of the lack of, you know, left-wing institutions to kind of carry the torch of class struggle, it seems to me that conversations around class, but also conversations around intersectionality are largely housed in like the ivory towers of academia, where class again is kind of seen as like an anachronism, this bygone era. We don't really talk about that anymore. And now we talk about things in terms of like, which, what is more primary, race or class or gender or class and so on. And that seems to be really unhelpful too. So to me, your book is largely trying to kind of help add to the conversation around intersectionality. So who were some of the people that you kind of brought into the dialogue to kind of help fill out this story about class and intersectionality, how race is a part of class, how class is a part of race? Well, it's drawing on a lot of different thinkers and like movement activists 
over the last, I'd say, 150 years, people who have been organizing around and, and thinking about these problems. I would say there are probably two that I would highlight as the most significant. Um, one coming from just the, the historical materialist tradition of Marx and socialist thinkers in that vein who were thinking about class struggle as a really definitional part of what modern society looks like. And they had all kinds of insights about how property, relationships to property, to rent and exploitation of labor are just a, a fundamental fact of modern life and not something that we should accept, but something we should struggle against that the cause of human liberation is, you know, has to take on these kinds of social relationships of property if we really want a, a more free and equal society. Um, and one of the concepts that came out of that early thinking, 19th century thinking, is what Karl Marx called the social totality, which means thinking about capitalism not as like strictly an economic system in which commodities are getting produced, but the way it shapes all of society. And that insight, I think, is really interesting because all of a sudden we can start to think about how you know, for working class peoples, it's not just that we face capitalist oppression, but also racism and sexism on the job, where we faced tiered labor markets, right, where immigrants and people of color don't have access to the same type of employment that more privileged people, white people, or people have access to education or something else do. So that that's a really important idea that I think starts to help us think about how race, gender, and class are all kind of happening at the same time. And there are some people in that tradition, like Cedric Robinson, who has written about racial capitalism, or C.L.R. James, W.B. Du Bois, who also really think very closely about how race and class intersect that, that come up in that conversation. The other major thinker and major tradition that was really important for the book is um, intersectional theory. And um, there's a whole variety of writers who have been writing on this, but the person I point to a lot in the book is Patricia Hill Collins. She has a book called Black Feminist Thought, where she's writing about um, Black women in social struggle and the type of oppression that they face. And she's thinking about race, class, and gender together. And in particular, she has this idea about difference, like how, how there's no singular Black woman, that Black women experience all kinds of different forms of oppression, draw their own conclusions. You know, they're individuals, they develop their own ideas. And so that difference within kind of the category, social category of Black women is extremely important. And I think that's a really useful idea for class too. Like the working class is not this singular you know, there's no one conclusion to be drawn from exploitation. People are coming to their own conclusions all the time. And the working class itself is very different and diverse. And, and we need a better way to take account of, of all of those things. So I'd say those two traditions I'm trying to put in conversation in the book in that way. Well, and so it really helps ground the analysis in a more rich and dynamic way of thinking about class beyond just the white working class and the factoried employees. But I wonder what this analysis does in terms of our practice around organizing anti-racist struggle, around organizing as a class. You know, the show focuses a lot on labor organizing because that's what I do. 
but I don't think that like labor organizing is the only thing. I guess it's the only thing in my world. But I would be curious to hear like your thoughts about, you know, how does this implicate our practices around organizing? Like what does this change for us in terms of our objectives, maybe our targets? And, you know, what role do institutions like unions have in fighting the class war as well as anti-racist struggle? Oof. Well, that is a great question. And I'm, yeah, I'm so excited to talk about this because I think there's a, a lot to be said about what that means for organizers. I guess the first thing is one of the things that the book tries to do is actually really emphasize the importance of workplace organizing as a strategic site. I, I think that's something that comes from the class struggle tradition that's been lost a little bit and that is important to keep talking about. You know, when we look at contemporary movements that take to the street and are posing disruptive action and occupy spaces, these are all really, really good things. But without the power to really challenge what's at the heart of the economy, which is where profits get made, which is in the workplace, it's really hard to win long-term gains. And so one of the things that I'm trying to emphasize is you know, we need to think about how to organize on the job, reclaim our power as workers, as people who are being exploited, and create more democratic institutions around work. And, and I think that's a really important part of the struggle. At the same time, that class struggle is not just limited to the workplace, that in fact, because of this variety of experiences, not everyone who's working class is a worker or has a job or is involved in that type of struggle. And so thinking about the diversity of working class experience means engaging working class struggle where it happens. And sometimes that's about reproductive labor. That is people not getting paid for the type of care work and, you know, necessary domestic work that it takes to keep us all going. Typically, this is happening for women who are being exploited in the home in this way so that there are struggles that need to be leveled there. Or around police violence. One of the bigger concerns maybe is not people's employment on the job, but the fact that they're constantly being harassed, surveilled, and killed by police officers in the United States. That also is an important site of working-class struggle that we as organizers need to think about and take seriously and think strategically about and not think of as that's a race struggle, that's a race issue, that's about white supremacy. No, that is profoundly a class issue and class struggle. Type of oppression and exploitation that Black people face comes directly from living in a hierarchical class society. White supremacy is used to enforce those hierarchies, and, and it's, it's part of what we should be thinking about with when we think about class. So that's part. The other part, I think, and this is mostly thinking about the kinds of ideas that are coming out of the left right now when they put forward kind of policy proposals um, around class interests that they think can help kind of unite working class people and break through the through the culture wars, for example, or things like this around universal health care or economic policies that kind of benefit everyone like raising the minimum wage or things like this. These are for sure important struggles. These are important things that we should support. 
but there's no kind of magic bullet singular class issue that is going to unite everybody because we all have different perspectives, different experiences, and different relationships. So the idea that there's kind of a universal class interest that can transcend the differences of race or gender or something else, I kind of think is a mistake. And in terms of political strategy and political program, we need to be thinking about that diversity in what it is that we're struggling for. And, and that's at the national level, we're like universal healthcare or something, but at our workplaces too, when we're struggling around issues in the workplace, they're affecting our coworkers in different ways. And so we need different sets of issues and different agendas that we're struggling for and with that can bring all those all those people together so i think it it you know in terms of organizing i'm hopeful it has an impact in that it, it helps us think about that difference and, and how to bring in different sets of people in the struggle in, in this way where i have a lot of difficulty is kind of trying to figure out the threads between all these struggles so while I agree. And I think a lot of people agree, like, yeah, it's not just about workplace organizing, but it's a clearly central and important, but we also have to think about police violence, think about housing discrimination, you know, all these issues matter. Right. Where I struggle is, you know, I've been in these like coalition meetings. It's always a coalition. Let's get a coalition of people together and you all have your camp and we have our camp and we'll figure it out as we go. It's like, nobody has any clue of how to connect these things. And, you know, I picked a lane. My lane is labor organizing because I decided once upon a time, like, I can't be everywhere and I can't do everything. I got to just get good at one thing. But I do struggle to figure out, like, how do you help, you know, clearly like workplace organizing matters and is a piece of fighting racism. Yes. How does it connect with these other pieces that are important too? Like, do you have any maybe like insights from history of these examples or even current practices that you've seen that are pointing in the right direction? Well, I mean, you're asking like the $64,000 question. Back. <laughs> it's like, if I knew how to do that, then organizing would be a lot easier. And, and organizing is by far the hardest thing I've ever tried to do. So just to say, like, I appreciate too the recognition that we don't have the answers. Yeah. Uh, organizing is hard work. I guess it's just like, this is where I feel like us leftists always kind of struggle and we want to just like pass the buck down to the future is like we'll figure it out as we go yeah and just thinking maybe we can pause now and take the time to see if there is anything concrete we come up with well in in a, a little bit more abstract sense i think just sort of trusting people to you know if if your goal as an organizer is to bring people into movement as a way of self-empowerment and there, there can't be any strings attached to that process. That has to be a process in which the person coming into movement is able to take it in directions that perhaps you didn't intend or, or your priority. And um, that has to be a part of the, a part of the, the game plan. And I think, I mean, so often, especially in traditional business union organizing, that is one of the few traditions that does have a more kind of methodical approach to organizing about one-on-ones and reaching out to people, it often comes with strings attached, agendas that, you know, that the organizers want to have happen. And people know that, that those don't necessarily align with their interests or what their priorities are. And so I think there's a real conversation to be had um, there about what 
empowerment means, it looks like. And I think even some of the best intended and, and people I really admire and respect, like the Jane McAlevey organizing model, I think carries a lot of that baggage of that kind of strings attached organizing. So I think there's something to think about there. Um, in terms of a historical example, I mean, the one that comes up in the book that I reference a lot and, and I'm trying to make a lot of use of are the the case of the very first industrial workers in the United States in the 1830s and 1840s, which were the factory workers of Lowell, Massachusetts, where they were making textiles in these huge factories that would employ hundreds or thousands of people. The very first time this kind of production was happening, the very first time wages were getting paid in this way. And those workers, almost to a one, were women workers. Like these industrial workers were not were not men. They were women of the New England countryside who were brought in mostly because they had no other option. They had no other place of employment in early 19th century society, and they could be a cheap and exploitable workforce for these companies. And when they got into the factories, they were working very long hours, 14 hours a day, uh, six or seven days a week for better pay than they would get elsewhere, but not very high pay. They were cheaper. They were getting paid less than male workers, for example. The conditions were dangerous. They were working with industrial machinery, in which case they could get a, a limb caught or their hair caught and cause serious damage. The factories were built very quickly and very cheaply. So there were industrial accidents, like in 1860, the collapse of the Pemberton mill that killed something like 140 people. So dangerous and difficult working conditions, industrial working conditions. And as the women who were brought into the factories said, hey, this doesn't seem right. This doesn't feel right. It, you know, it feels like we're getting exploited. We don't, we don't control our own labor anymore. We're being told what to do by the machinery and the, and the employers. And they tried to take some action about it. Well, women faced social restrictions in which they weren't supposed to be political. They weren't supposed to speak in public. They weren't supposed to vote or run for office, or they kind of had no way to address these core kind of class economic issues that they were experiencing. And so they developed their own literature. They developed their own newspapers. They had their own press. And they started talking about these issues. They started organizing. They formed what they called a reform association, the whole Female Labor Reform Association, which is kind of like a proto-union. And they said they took on both of these aspects. They said, look, we're getting exploited on the job. And this kind of patriarchal oppression is telling us we can't even speak about the issues that we encounter. We have to, in the words of one, one writer at the time, Sarah Bagley, she said, we have to war with oppression of every form. That is, we have to challenge both of these things that are telling us that we have to be exploited in, in this way, capitalism and patriarchy. And that just being able to kind of articulate those ideas and start to talk about the issues that they, that they face and then take action on them. I think that's, that is an example of, of the kinds of thinking and organizing that we can do today. That is taking on like all these different factors of exploitation and oppression that, that people face. Yeah, that's a really interesting example. Cause I think one of the things that emerges is that 
the model of organizing had to be like a novel innovation itself, like industrial unionism was an emergent and militant form of organizing. It wasn't like the popular form. And I wonder if for today, that's basically what the stakes are, is that we have to start insisting on new forms of organizing, like labor unions today. You know, I think it's hard to say, are they craft unions? Are they industrial unions? Like there's this like weird hodgepodge of different types of unions that exist. But that spirit of industrial unionism of like the one big union is very much not in the lexicon of most, you know, staff or union officialdom today. And it almost seems like we're kind of having to repeat some history here of like, you need to bring this back, like a new independent spirit of like industrial unionism that will by design have to practice in different ways. Yeah, I, I think so. And it leads to some really difficult questions. The thing that this is making me think of is the 2020 Black Lives Matter uprising based here in Seattle. And um, like much of the country, there was just this unprecedented upswell of activity of people. I remember during that June, you know, leaving my house and walking out to the street to go to the bus stop. And outside, people had seemingly spontaneously stopped their cars, blocked traffic, come out into the street. It was like this really, really amazing moment. And one of the things that developed here in Seattle was the relationship of the police union to the labor movement. And there was a huge debate in the county labor council about whether the police union should be included. They had been invited to join the AFL labor council a few years previously. And so there was a movement of rank and file union members to basically remove them from the from the council to say, hey, these police unions that are killing black people and, and working class people, our co-workers, are not part of a, a process of empowering working people. In fact, they're right. doing the opposite and so should be should be removed. But there was a real significant pushback from established labor leaders and, and well-known figures in the labor movement like Bill Fletcher Jr. and other people who are saying, well, police get paid a wage and so they're also exploited workers and so they should have a place in this in this union and and i think that is a great example of the kind of complication that we begin to encounter when we start to think about okay yes working class yes labor exploitation but also class politics mean more than just whether you receive a wage or a paycheck or not it's also about a commitment to a kind of politics, uh, I think, a liberatory politics, and that we need to start making distinctions and, I think, rightly remove police unions from labor movement uh, spaces because they are not part of empowerment of working people, but in fact, exactly the opposite. And where I think the kind of one big union, solidarity union model works and it's the tradition I come out of. I'm an IWW member to this day, and I, I you know, support the IWW. I think it, it works until we start thinking about the boundaries, and then we have to make some decisions about where the politics come into play. And it's it's not an easy, it's not an easy question, um, and we have to have a clear idea of what we're aiming for to be able to to make those kinds of distinctions. Yeah, I think that. You're right that I remember that push to like kick out the cop unions 
And it seems like that conversation has basically disappeared. Like it was really hot for a minute, had some places like in Seattle, like you're talking about where you saw results, but overall didn't really change much in terms of established unions. Um, And the strategies that people embraced clearly were in conflict with each other, which kind of sounds like the story of like intersectional class struggle over and over and over again. You have this like repeated debate about expediency, like what's the most immediate path towards victory and what do we need to focus on today? Who are the agents of change? It seems like we're just like constantly in the cycle of rehashing the same debates. So I I just want to hear more about what you think about that. Yeah, I mean, it's partially because the those structures of capital and white supremacy are still with us. And so the strategic approach to how do we challenge these, I, I think one example on this is around like the labor movement and immigration and immigrants and job competition, because that's been a centuries long uh, struggle. And the, the piece that's been really hard to overcome is that there is an economic claim for restricting immigrant participation in national labor markets to try to make labor more scarce and raise the value of labor based on these type of exclusions. And so we see it happening over and over from the 19th century with Sam, Samuel Gompers in the AFL writing that Filipino immigrant migrant laborers shouldn't be allowed to join AFL unions to even people like Cesar Chavez and the farm workers struggle trying to figure out ways to limit Mexican immigrants from coming into California farms. And the reason why they're doing that is because within labor market competition, they're trying to protect a particular set of workers' interests mm-hmm. who are in competition because of these markets with other workers. And I don't think that works. I, I don't think that's going to get us where we need to go. I think that's going to continue to create divisions. And, you know, there's a long history of kind of internationalist struggle uh, uh, that the left labor movement has been trying to promote. But it, it, we keep having that same debate because the structures are there and they lead people to think in particular ways. And, and we just have to organize, convince, educate, you know, that, that there's, there's a better way and we need to break these cycles. And one of the things that I think is good about here in the 21st century is we can, it's not like a question anymore. You know, we don't have to be like, well, let's see how this, no, we know that it's going to produce xenophobic reaction. We know that it's going to tend towards economic devastation. We know that it's going to continue to perpetuate racism and these other things. So it's time for something different and we can start having those conversations. Now, another area that I think I see a lot of conflict and tension around is a bit of a shift of what we've been talking about. But you brought up 2020 uprisings around Black Lives Matter in the wake of the killing of George Floyd. And uh, where I was at the time was like a college campus kind of community town, a smaller town, the campus environment really did, you know, shape and dictate basically all the culture surrounding it. Everybody's job was kind of dependent on the college. Uh, So a lot of the activism was really led by students. And so there was, just like everywhere else, it felt like a lot of kind of almost spontaneous rebellion, people shutting down the streets, things that in this college town, pretty uncommon. But what I remember happening was, you know, I'm listening to these students talk and like speak on the bullhorn and stuff. 
And they kept repeating this idea that that we were waiting for the leadership. You know, leaders were coming. The leadership was going to tell us what to do. And until then, we just like right now, just being in the streets together is what we need to do. We'll figure it out later (laughs) again, (laughs) kind of same mantra. And everybody kept kind of waiting around for some mysterious leaders that were going to tell us what to do next. Mm-hmm. And it just brings up the, the the tension around the idea of leadership, like an intersectional class struggle, like how do we view leadership and, you know, where do we get our marching orders to start pointing us in the direction that, you know, we need to go into? Like, what, what do you think about these subjects when they come to mind? Wow, what a good question. I mean, it's so, it, it is a really important question for movements to consider because there is a degree in which people emerge as kind of particularly insightful or that people respect and they can hold sway. And so there are continually going to be those types of roles that people need to fill and, and people who are stepping in to fill them. I, I think the, the question around leadership and this idea that we need to wait for, for great leaders, I think really comes from the type of histories that you know, non-movement activists tell, which is there were particular individuals who were particularly courageous, and these individuals made something spectacular happen. So you hear this all the time in the civil rights movement is the biggest. There's a Rosa Parks or Martin Luther King who is intelligent and forthright and can do the right thing at the right moment, and and that's why these, these things change. And we see it in the labor movement, too, I think that there are particular leaders, even in the IWW tradition that I love and identify with, you know, there's a big Bill Haywood or something, or a Joe Hill, or, you know, these kind of lionized figures that made these kinds of movements happen. But I, I think it takes a real shift to move from that individual basis of what movements look like to the collective relationships that are in fact the core definition of, of social social movements. And a little bit, the book is trying to ha- have this intervention that it is in fact the collective relationships that we build across differences that are a way to empower ourselves. So part of that conversation, I think, has to be shifting, shifting the focus from, well, what is the leadership telling us to do? to what are we deciding to do in and between each other? And how do we have the conversations and the organizing structure that can facilitate actually making a decision together in a way that it's meaningful? And that kind of shift is is really hard because we are so used to these, these lionized figures from our past who are important. It's not that they weren't important. And there will continue to be people that play those roles. But I I think shifting that consciousness. And there's one book that I think is really important to highlight here. It actually comes from the civil rights movement. The book is called I've Got the Light of Freedom by Charles Payne. And it's about the the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And the main argument that's being put forward there is that the thing that made the whole civil rights movement happen but in particular, this organization was not the emergence of policy, changed law, the figures, figureheads who kind of forced through those type of changes, but 
what he calls the Southern organizing tradition, which was a one-on-one having conversations with people, even in very small ways, to build collective strength to fight against like almost impossible odds, like extremely scary and violent circumstances. And that shift from it's not what's happening at the top, but what we're doing together, that's important. Now, just in the spirit of throwing big questions at you, uh, another one I just want to hear your thoughts on is that, you know, you mentioned earlier, part of our challenge is that we're lacking the institutions to wage class struggle. You know, in the past, we had robust industrial unions, the IWW plays bright, this Communist Party USA, those Black Panthers, there's a lot, right? And today we're lacking those kind of left-wing militant class struggle institutions to carry the torch. And I think this, what you bring up about leadership and the kind of great man theory of historical change, Mm -hmm. when those institutions are scarce and lacking, my impression is that what happens and what we're dealing with today is that a lot of younger folks that are trying to get engaged in like social movement struggle, they learn about social justice and politics in the academy. And the academy teaches a very like great man theory of change. And even the intersectional lens in the academy is very liberal. It's very flat. It's all about like checking the boxes of oppression rather than this kind of intersectional class struggle lens that you're talking about. And it's like they're training these younger folks to be kind of individualist and activist rather than like movement participants. And I I wonder what you think about that. If you think my impression has, if there's any, you know, validity to that kind of theory. And if there is, does that mean that like the Academy is kind of one of the targets we really have to hone in on and challenge? Yeah, well, like any institution, it's kind of a mixed bag. You know, um, there are good things that are happening there. There are figures that are really valiant in their commitment to popular power and social struggle. And they often bear consequences for being forthright and active in, in movement work. But nonetheless, some are able to find a space in academic spaces. And But I would say, you know, for the most part, yeah, these institutions don't exist to foster, you know, challenges to the status quo, but are themselves part of the status quo. And, but I think that's true of other institutions as well, like unions. You know, unions are, are complicated. In a large degree, they exist to kind of regularize and pacify worker movements and, and to systematize, you know, the, this kind of exploitation that I think we need to challenge at its root. But at the other hand, the better ones are democratic and can be engaged with with the people who are members and begin to have them reflect their own interests. So it's kind of a a tricky question. I don't know that there's any clear answer. And so I think the question is then how do we build the institutions that challenge those notions and are based on collective power? And I do think there has to be a degree that we are making those ourselves, that those are coming from popular movements, that they're not beholden to um, the structures of power that universities are. Um, and that, and that's part of a movement building process that 
we we don't really have here. There have been some glimmers of it here. Like, for example, in the late 2000s, there were efforts to produce a U.S. social forum, and there was one in Atlanta and another in Detroit. And I think institutions like that, that are, you know, one part movement in that they're they're bringing movements of different types, environmental, anti-racist, labor together in conversation. So one part real empowerment in that sense, but also doing intellectual work, having people talk to each other, having a space to reflect on the type of struggles that, that we have. Like those are those are institutions of the kind of intellectual work that I think can challenge that notion from the universities and that you know, we've been close to sustaining in the United States and we need to find out ways to keep keep contributing to that. Well, I think um, what I'd like to do is try to move us to a conclusion here. And I know that so far, I've been probably keeping the cynicism really present in this conversation, uh, all the challenging, meaty questions that there's not easy answers to. It's by far the hardest questions I've, I've had. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> My apologies. I'm a crank. <laughs> it's good. But I think maybe it would be uh, beneficial to try to end this conversation on some notes of optimism and places where we see possibilities. And I guess for myself, I would say that I agree with your assessment. We really do need to be in the position of creating these institutions of counterpower, these new independent organizations. And I take a lot of heart from the what I think is the rebound of the IWW in the United States. I really do think you know, membership has increased, which you can look at that in, in a number of different ways. It's not necessarily like active membership has increased, but yeah. there are more people getting interested in the IWW enough to even encounter it online somehow and like want to be a part of it. I think that's positive. And I've seen, you know, some campaigns on the ground with some real success. So it seems like not just the IWW, but independent unions are increasing. Mm-hmm. You've got Amazonians United that I take a lot of inspiration from. You yeah. even got Chris Smalls's brand of the Amazon labor union that filed for a recognition in you know, Long Island. And whether or not that's the greatest strategy for fighting Amazon, that's debatable. Yeah. But nevertheless, these are workers that aren't even affiliated with a big union. They're just trying to do it themselves. So I take a lot of inspiration there. And I'm wondering if maybe you could share some of the places where you take inspiration and feel optimistic too about our prospects for conducting intersectional class struggle? Well, I, I think, I mean, you highlighted some of the ones that are the biggest for me, but I, I think it's not just in the United States. I think kind of globally, there's this upswell of activity, um, you know, partially because the crises that we're facing are so acute but also because people are taking dramatic and very brave, very brave action on scales that are just unprecedented. And I, and I think, you know, there's, there's lots that we can, we can point to. I mean, from this last summer, the thing that really stands out to me is the Columbia general strike. That was a nationwide strike against reforms that were coming out of the coronavirus crisis and the economic crisis that it was causing in Colombia. Um, the government was attempting to raise fees and taxes on just regular people as a part of a way to pay for the crisis and labor unions but also students and then interestingly indigenous groups all struck against um, uh, uh, the imposition of these reforms 
uh, were able to build connections with each other across these kind of different organizations that they had, um, sustained the strike for a month and a half, were able to force ministers to resign. I mean, there, it was a real demonstration of popular power, and I think along the lines of of intersectional struggle that, that we've seen. Or another one, I think, from the year before was in Canada around environmental struggles um, and indigenous sovereignty. In British Columbia, there were several indigenous nations that were protesting with direct action to stop the expansion of pipeline projects across British Columbia. They're attacked by the police and then the public response in Canada shut down the entirety of the Canadian rail system for a week in solidarity with this indigenous climate struggle, um, but really demonstrated kind of worker power, popular power around targeting the, the key infrastructure, you know, that, that is facilitating those projects. Or I, I, th I think the activity in Chile that's happening right now, which that came out of feminist movements and feminist struggle. The Chile, Chilean feminists had built a massive nationwide popular movement that was staging strikes in Chile in 2017 and 2018. And when there were kind of neoliberal reforms that were being put on subway fares and other things, they were able to take those networks, transform them nationwide and impose a new constitutional referendum where they're rewriting the rules of the game from the Pinochet dictatorship. So like there are really massive and tremendously inspiring uh, uh, movements that, that are working in this intersectional way. And I think part of the reason that they're winning successes here is because they're taking intersectionality seriously in that way. They are working across difference they're not just kind of siloed on singular issues, but are thinking more broadly um, and able to build organization ways to talk to each other, organization across those differences. And, and I think that's really, that is good stuff. Oh, that I'd like to thank you. We've been talking to Michael Regan, not to be confused with uh, Ronald Reagan. <laughs> no, <sorry>. no. <laughs> Michael Reagan, not to be confused with Ronald Reagan's piece of shit, son, of Correct. the same name. <laughs> Author of the book, Intersectional Class Struggle, folks can get it online through akpress.org, but there's also lots of local bookstores that sell it. Um, I just want to thank you for coming on the show, and I really did enjoy your book a lot. Folks should definitely read it because there's so much in the book that we didn't even touch on in this conversation. But organizing is the most important piece, so I'm really grateful for, for, for your whole program, actually. It's one of my favorite, favorite podcasts. Oh, well, thank you. That. Let's just end it on that sweet note. Okay. <laughs> Until we talk again. You're listening to a Channel Zero Network podcast. The Channel Zero Network is a decentralized network of anarchist podcasts, bringing you analysis of current events, media criticism, rebellious music, interviews with academics and authors, how-tos, and so much more. This is The Final Straw Radio, a weekly anarchist and anti-authoritarian radio show broadcasting out of occupied Salagi land in southern Appalachia. Hello, and welcome to Live Like the World is Dying, your podcast for what feels like the end times. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy. What's up, y'all? I'm Pearson, host of Coffee with Comrades. You've been listening to Rebel Steps. I'm your host, Liz. Believe in yourself, trust one another, and get organized. Hello, this is Linda. You're listening to Subversion 1312 on the Channel Zero Network. 
Whether you are anarcho-curious or a hardened militant, CZN's ever-growing roster of programs has something for you. Head over to channelzeronetwork.com to find out more.